welcome back to Sports and Society for March 4th. We're coming to you a day late because uh, we're busy. we got things to do. But how are you doing today, Kyle? I'm doing well. We are so important. <laughs> we... We have so many people counting on us, and we we have so many important things to do. That's why we're a day late. Let's just say it how it is. I mean, let's be clear here. We are both uh, big proponents of the cult of busyness here. Uh, It is our whole life and goal to be as busy as possible. Here we are. Uh, What did you pay attention to this week? (laughs) Um, I actually paid a lot of attention to sports, but I'm going to pick something that's kind of outside my norm this past week, which was, um, I mentioned it last week, but these Bryce Harper and Manny Machado contracts um, just really interest me from a perspective of I don't understand baseball contracts at all, apparently. Um, why they would go for longevity over um, number amount per year just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't have an answer to that either. I had the same question when I saw both of these contracts. What's just? I, a, I wonder. Yeah, go ahead. Well, just we're in the NBA. We see on the opposite. These guys are all going to like one-year deals with options or two-year deals with options because they're all betting on their own ability to make more money moving forward. And it's just fascinating that I don't know if there's just baseball doesn't see any more money coming in or what the deal is. I can't help but think that both of them, a hundred percent, chose money over championships, mm. which that narrative in baseball seems to be entirely juxtaposed to what the NBA is all about. In the, in the sense that, like, when you think about the conversation of like who's the best ever or who is great right now, it, it's all about how many rings you have. Whereas that just doesn't come up that often in baseball. And so the idea of both of them just hitting home runs and fielding grounders and were uh, Harper in the outfield, like who's not even a great outfielder, but great, like they both just chose money, in my opinion, with the Phillies and the Padres. I mean, I think Harper's got a better chance with the Phillies, but uh, yeah, they both were odd choices. And it's interesting, you know, the Yankees decide to seemingly back off of it both of them early on, which, of course, that's where we all expected them to go. Um, Right. But, you know, both of these guys are guys that have had mindset questions asked of them in the past, so that comes up in this as well. Um, But, yeah, I just – I don't get it. Like, why – and I guess we've seen, like, the examples of why you wanted and that A-Rod signed that massive deal, right? Uh, Was I'm thinking it was 12 or 13 years with the Yankees, right? Um, Right. And then, you know, it kind of all fell apart for him at some point, and yet he was still getting paid for it. Right. Um, but, I mean, I guess there's – we see it all the time with guys like Pujols, too, that you just lose it at some point. But, right. man, I, I just don't know why they're doing that. Um, it's an interesting thing, too, about baseball. In the Pujols example is a good example, I think, that he was still very productive – uh, those last four or five years where he seemingly wasn't as great as he once was. And in the baseball world, they seem to be okay with that too at some level, hmm. that they would even sign the contract for someone like Pujols and then with uh, Machado or Harper, that they'll take a 291 average and 91 RBIs instead of 310 and 140. 
like they're still like ah, yeah we'll, we'll we'll take that there's a we, there's a lot we can get out of that and i would imagine it sells some tickets to some extent even those stars and decline so I, I i agree with you though that i don't understand the whole logic behind it oh my well what what have you been paying attention to so i was struck by the mls opening hmm. uh, and i think what stuck out stuck out to me is the amount of fervor amongst fans and then also the amount of coverage that the mls season uh starting got and I guess in, on some level, I was really encouraged by it. And then there was also lingering in my mind the, the fact that relegation doesn't exist mm-hmm. in MLS. And I don't know if you, I don't even know where I read it. I should have looked it up. But there was an article a couple of weeks ago. I might have been the Guardian, actually, which we always go back to. <laughs> At any rate, uh, talking about hurdles in place that keep relegation from happening in MLS and the list seems insurmountable Hmm. and even with everyone that is like mentioned in that list like in their heart is pro relegation because of what it could mean for soccer in the US in in the sense that there are all these medium sized cities in the US that uh, have professional soccer teams that are getting just devout following but and it would just be perfect for a relegation system but the way mls was formed when it was formed and how it has played out over the last few years all of these institutional hurdles have been slotted into place that make it near impossible to pull off and so it was just kind of this excitement that mls is getting so much attention and all these stadiums are sold out Yet, uh, we'll never have relegation, which would be my number one hope for soccer in America. It is tough. I mean, I would love it. Just thinking personally, like, I could see a Roanoke team absolutely taking off here locally. And then a chance, even the slightest chance that that could, we could be playing teams like DC United would be so cool. Um, Yep. But, yeah, yeah and, th- and that's what uh, FC Cincinnati opened against Seattle, which is like sounds crazy to me. Like, wait a minute, what? FC Cincinnati is playing against Seattle? What? <laughs> and then thinking about, I drive by every morning, Louisville Stadium that's being built. And to think that they lost the sweet sweepstakes for that spot that FC Cincinnati got. I was like, what are we building that stadium for? Like, MLS is not going to have 38 teams, and if they do, they won't be uh, they won't be able to maintain that. And so it's like, oh, it's cool for the city that there seems to be this passion for it, but I'm also just like, where are we headed with this? What's what's the go- end goal here? Yeah. Hmm. But, yeah. Fingers crossed. We'll maintain hope. You know, I mean, we saw that. Way back in the day, the reason that the old USL folded is because they expanded too much, and you know, there's always a chance that the MLS folds. As much as I don't wish that, but you know, maybe there's a coming point when we can start having those conversations, and uh, you know, stripping down the top tier to 20 teams would make sense to me on some level. Because to be honest, I don't know who most of these players are anymore. Right. Yeah. Same. Absolutely. But you want to get into our article for the week? Yeah, so this week we're going to be talking about uh, 
an article called The Three-Point Boom is Far From Over by Zach Cram on The Ringer, which I have to confess to being a big fan of The Ringer uh, these days. But uh, you want to give us an overview of it, Kyle? I'm first interested that you're a big fan of The Ringer, so maybe put that on hold, and if you want to unpack that, I would be interested in that. Um, um. <laughs> or you can go for it now. <laughs> I mean... Uh, you know, I was a fan of Grantland, and I don't know that The Ringer is quite as good as Grantland was at its peak, um, but their podcasting stuff is just incredible. Um, yeah. And so I listen to a number of their different things, including right now their Game of Thrones binge mode podcast, which is fascinating and incredible and totally changing the way I watch that show. Um, but yeah, just love the way that they look at the news and the way the snark and uh energy that they bring to it in some ways cool that makes me excited actually to listen to more of their podcasts especially game of thrones so all right you got me well all done right. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so this uh week's article is about uh the evolution of the game of basketball and more specifically, I thought the way he started the article kind of encapsulates what's significant about the article as far as the statistics are c- concerned. But he says, in the first NBA Finals to feature the three-point line, the L.A. Lakers and 76ers made one three-pointer. Not one per game or per team or per individual shooter. Not one so impressive it led Sports Center or one so clutch it swung a key game. No, in May 1980... The Lakers and 76ers combined to make one three total across six (laughs) competitive games. And then he mentions that there's infinite statistics that are cleverly countered with that. But one that stands out is that last season, uh, the Rockets made more threes than any franchises combined total throughout the 1980s. Uh, and so it's it's about that stark ca- contrast between what the three was when the three-point line was first brought into the game and what it is now. And so he goes on to speak to a lot of folks that are involved with this evolution, those that were progenitors and then those that have been kind of very close observers to how this evolution has played out. And then more so he talks about if there is a peak point and if we have reached it yet. And again, tons of statistics about how the three-pointer has changed the game at large. But I think what really gets uh, interesting and why I think it would be a fun article to talk about uh, at a more in-depth level is all the questions that are raised and so he kind of raises a number of these questions, and then some of them are implied. And so I thought just kind of introducing some of these questions and then picking one or two or all of them and seeing where, where that leads us. But the first question, as mentioned, being like, have we reached the peak yet? Uh, he mentions Grinnell College, uh, a team that's uh, shooting over 60% of their shots from three. Uh, would we ever see something like where we got to like 90% of shots taken uh, as three-pointers? I think we could look at like why they are doing it. Uh, Why are teams doing this leads to an interesting sort of conversation about evolution in sports in general. Then more importantly, you can start talking about the consequences of the evolution. And this is what he talks a lot about. 
because I think uh, it's this question that becomes interesting and really worth unpacking because on the one level, we can kind of talk about how and why the change has come about. And the short answer is sabermetrics. But then if you're like, okay, but wait, why are they using sabermetrics? What is the point here? And if the goal is winning, which is kind of self-evident, then it leads into a question, well, what if to win a game necessitates being unpopular and or being unentertaining or not worth watching? So I think that becomes interesting. Uh, I think also when you get into the minutiae of some of this, you start looking at the role of individuals that have caused this and or are taking it to the next level. And within that, it's you start talking about the Steph Curry stuff, about how Steph Curry contrasts with the Wilt Chamberlain model of like what a star is in the NBA. And then as is the case with many other sabermetrics issues in other sports, baseball in particular, is this kind of dichotomy or contrast between the traditionalists and then those that are way out there on the front line saying, let's see what we can pull out of this. Uh, but ultimately, I guess, to kind of summarize is the conversation that's happening in and around what happens when this becomes less enjoyable. And if this becomes less enjoyable, as he points out, then it becomes a matter of do we or does the NBA or the powers that be institute a law or a rule or guidelines for the game that kind of mitigate their perceived harm that's happening because people are chucking so many threes. And then that even kind of gets interesting of like, wait a minute, what are these rules for? Uh, and who gets to decide what these rules are? And then you obviously end up talking about money and how the whole enterprise kind of turns on money. And what do we do if it is true that money is dictating how we orchestrate these games that are meant to be entertaining. Uh, and so I, I think there's a lot of sub-questions in there, but uh, that's kind of how I took away some of the central questions. Yeah, so there's so much to unpack here. Um, first off, got to give you a shout-out for being the only person in sports broadcast history to use the word progenitors on a, on a podcast. So <laughs> shout-out for that. Um, uh, and then I just... I want to take a moment here to dig into some of the stuff that we're talking about. So last year's Rockets were the first team uh, in NBA history to shoot more threes than twos. Um, and right now, though, as a league, you know, we're looking somewhere in the most teams shooting 35 to 50% of their shots from threes. But there are predictions that we could be hitting towards 60 to 65% threes. Um, and it really is the thing that kind of stood out to me on first read with this is some of these charts in here. And just once you see the charts, how obvious it is, why this is the case. Right. Um, so the most meaningful one here is just that um, in terms of shot percentage, if you're making a layup or you're within one foot of the basket, you have about an 80% chance of making it. And then once you get to four, three or four feet away, you are now looking at about 40%. And that is pretty much the same up to about 28 feet away, which uh, then leads to this whole question of now we're going to have points per attempt. And so right close to the basket, you're getting about 1.5 because you're making it about 80% of the time. 
But by the time you're at four feet away, three or four feet away from the basket, you're well below one point per attempt, except when you go beyond the three-point line, when you jump back up to close to 1.2%, uh, 1.2 points per shot attempt, which is just a dramatic increase. And it's like, well, duh. Well, why would I not do that at some point? Right. Um, and so with that being the case, it really does, I mean, it kind of leaves these franchises with no excuse. I mean, other than if you have Greg Popovich, who's kind of got an effort attitude and is like, we're going to shoot mid-range jumpers because that's what we do. Um, right. You've got everybody else doing, shooting threes and being rewarded for it. Um, and then the, kind of the last thing that I wanted to point out from the article itself, and I think this is worth mentioning as well, is just um, – he makes some points towards the end about how defense has not kept up with that, uh, yeah. with the offensive push. And I think we see that in things like um, Rudy Gobert winning defensive player of the year, even though he can't stay on the floor in the playoffs. Right. Um, and so when are we going to transition to a thing where we're starting to see um, guys like Tony Allen and, and they can defend on the perimeter, even if they can't do anything else, uh, when are we going to see hundreds of those guys kind of coming into the league uh, and replacing those centers that uh, can't do anything? And it, uh, they're mostly wondering, is DeAndre Ayton going to be the last seven-foot guy or big guy we see taking number one in the draft at this point? Um, right. Because that doesn't seem to be keeping up either. You know, there's there were three to five um, seven-foot guys taken in the first 15 picks of the draft, and uh, that doesn't make any sense these days. Right. Yeah, and so that makes me think about one thing I wanted to bring up, and I would imagine most sabermetric adherents would turn away from the idea of pointing to one play <laughs> as being significant, but I couldn't help think about it when he talked about the role that defense will play in finding where this plateau is, or if it'll just keep peaking or something like that. But I couldn't help but think of the play of Kevin Love guarding Steph Curry mm. on that last possession. And I firmly believe that Steph Curry would have gotten by someone that was purely there for length. Whereas Kevin Love in some ways is kind of this next generation, someone that can play inside and outside. And he's normally known as not a great defender but on that play proved that it was possible for someone that is that big and that tall to shut down someone that is seen as someone that kind of embodies this evolution uh and so in that way like my quick answer to one of the questions of is this uh or will we reach a peak i think we'll see a lot of kevin loves being valued or at least uh a version of that, whatever that might be. I don't think Kevin Love is the ideal NBA player right now, but uh, I could see teams incorporating players like Love to stop people like Curry. Well, so I've got to give a shout-out to my uh, my college team here in UVA and say that I would attribute a great deal of their success this year to their three-point defense. They rank number one in the NCAA in terms of three-point defense percentage. Yeah. Um, which I think is just huge. And I think so Tony Bennett has figured out how to teach closeouts in a way that has lifted that team above what it could be otherwise. And you look at guys like 
DeAndre Hunter, who's got the potential to be as high as a number three pick this year, um, just because he can make the three, uh, and he's going to be an above average defender at six foot seven, six foot eight with long arms. Like that's the that's the guy everybody wants these days, and nobody can get enough of. I saw some article the other day about Marcus Brogdon, but I didn't read it. I'm sure you read it. Oh, Do you Brog- know what I'm talking? Brogdon's the best man. That's the dude. <laughs> but I also did see another article about how a lot of smaller smaller schools in NCAA are mimicking what UVA is doing and seeing it as a roadmap to entering that kind of upper echelon. I can't remember where I saw that one either. Um, I'm useless on my references tonight. (laughs) Well, but it is. I mean, I think that that's what you're going to see is you're going to see inevitably teams that are really good at shutting down that three-point line thrive. And I think we see that some in the the regular season. I think the Thunder are the best example of that. Um, And, you know, they've got a couple – generational offensive talents as well uh but they've been able to do a lot of this without russell westbrook being particularly good and it's because they're so good at defending that three-point line right yeah and so that raises a question of if uh, a defensive built team is going to be the only other option so if you can't get these once in a generation shooters and or what happens when there are hundreds of players that can shoot like Steph Curry, if that's possible. So I think that's an interesting question in, in this is that I I think you can point to Steph Curry as a huge part of this, right? That like when the Warriors won the championship, that was the moment when many teams were like, oh, you can win a championship playing like this. And so if we can't get these – uh, which are quite rare, kind of like Anthony Davis, Marcus Cousins, uh, just these kind of like freak inside players that are just exceptionally gifted athletically. Then let's get a whole bunch of Steph Curry's, and I wonder if that's a thing. Like, are there a lot of Steph Curry's? I don't think we see much evidence yet, but uh, the Rockets, in some ways, kind of push back against that and say if we've got seven decent three-point shooters we can shoot 60 percent of our shots a night and come out mathematically pretty strong on this well yeah and i think you know i'm glad you brought it back to the rockets because they're the big question mark i was you know there's this big question about the enjoyment that you brought up which i think is the key question here in some ways and you know i'm struck by this zach Lowe quote because of course you and i worship at the altar of zach Lowe's wisdom on the nba but um I have this quote, too, down. (laughs) I was going to read it. (laughs) He says, uh, the league does not want NBA basketball to look like a pickup game, and it is concerned that games with, say, 70 combined three-point attempts will take on a feel of a ragged, me-first, open-gym game. I have to say that um, this was several years ago uh, that he said this, and I think the Warriors have proved him wrong that a three-point shooting team can be exciting. I think we see that with the Bucks this year as well, um, that they can, you know, you can do interesting things uh, and play interesting basketball with that. But then on the flip side, you have the Rockets, who are like the definition of that game where only one guy touches the ball. I mean, freaking, the guy scored like 80 points in two games and none of them were assisted. That's 
that's not okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there is a juxtaposition, right, between how the Rockets and the Warriors do it. Uh, and it's it's stark. As in, I am like, who cares what I think? But the fact that I have not tuned in on purpose to watch a Rockets game in the last two years seems somewhat significant. Yet, whenever the Warriors are on the East Coast, I'm always aware that it would be possible to watch them play for a few minutes. And to maybe even kind of try and pinpoint what it is, I think it's that they're, it's the Warriors' obsession and creativity in those two or three feet behind and in front of the three-point line. And it's like how they exist in that space, if you are watching for that very specifically, of like, okay, how do they find six inches to get off a shot in a split second? And to watch for something that's uh, small and so niche, I wonder if everyone finds that as interesting. Uh, and, and if it's not just that the Warriors like won so many games that one year, that Steve Kerr is an interesting coach and says things in public against Trump, <laughs> and that they beat the NBA record, and that they have five All-Stars on their team. And so I, I wonder if maybe... They're an outlier on our interest in the three-point game for other reasons, and if the three-point game is truly that interesting. But my answer, as I said, is like what they do in those two to three feet. Like that is pretty fascinating uh, and fun to watch, and the way they move the ball in that space is pretty fun. But the Rockets do not have that. I don't think. Do you? No, and I think this is where I break it down on some level. Like on some level, uh, Steph and James Harden are generational talents like uh, maybe even beyond that like once in a league type talents um the difference being that harden does it like he has to do it for a job interview uh and steph looks like he's just having a ball out there i've not seen james harden play where i'm like dude that guy's having such a great time out there yeah um and steph on the other hand like if I were Steph's opponent, I think I'd be pissed all the time because he's always laughing and, you know, just having a good time out there, which I think is infectious, and that's kind of what we want to see with those players. And so I think that's where it's – when it becomes the system is about three-pointers. And actually there's a – I haven't checked this recently, but early in the season the Warriors were in the bottom uh, five, ten teams in terms of percentage of three-point shots, which is a really interesting thing in some ways. Um yeah. But the way they're doing it is just so so different, and I think that's the same with the um, the Bucks in some ways. Is that I've been really captivated by their transcendent season in some ways, and I think it's because you know it goes back to why do we love watching basketball? In some ways, it's um, you know it's about seeing incredible feats of athleticism, seeing people do incredible things, uh, and I think there's a way to do that in this three point heavy game, and we can see that with Giannis wowing us and doing incredible unstoppable things even though he can't shoot a three-pointer and then feeding a bunch of three-point shooters around him um i think the problem comes in when you make it uh, a metronomic system like the rockets are or on the flip side when you're just not very good at it like i think the problem in some ways is watching two teams shoot 73 pointers and only making 20 of them like, I right. think that's the worst nightmare in some ways. Right. 
when they're yeah. shooting 40 percent. I, I think that's what yeah. Lowe's talking about right and yeah. the the Warriors do prove low wrong but if 22 teams took on this way of playing a hundred percent and played it full out I think that is when the institutional powers would become involved and that is when I think the NBA would uh, start to I don't know what their options are I mean I've heard a bunch of talk I don't know which ones stick out to you but the idea of a four-point line is fascinating to think about the idea of making the court bigger is fascinating uh, it, I, I, it's interesting to think because whatever their option is, if they're going to push back against this or mitigate what they define as harmful impact, it's going to be weird, <laughs> right? Like whatever they come up with is going to have to be kind of countercultural to what the NBA is in a lot of ways. And so if they're worried about it looking like a pickup game, which I'm sure Lowe is right that a lot of owners have used that phrase, and apparently he has like all the owners on speed dial, uh, which I love that that Lowe is just like talking to owners every day. Uh, but yeah, what are they going to do? What what are their options? You know, I think what what I want to say to this is um, is to start a bigger conversation in some ways and talk about how we define this yeah. game. Um, yeah. And so I think last week, what did we talk about last week? I can't even remember. Um, golf stuff, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Slow play. Slow play. And we talked about, you know, what would happen, what would you have to do to speed it up? And I think in the same way that I don't necessarily want, uh, I think in some ways what we're seeing right now is that the game at this point is a fundamentally different game than it was 30 years ago before this was happening. Right. Like, Folks that played in the 60s and 70s do not recognize the game that's being played right now. And that, I think, is a problem. Right. Um, like, I think there should always be, in some ways, a pure form of the game. I hate to use that kind of language, but that's uh, that's what I'm wondering. And I think when you created this three-point line and instituted it, it created a fundamentally different game. Uh, and so the question then for me becomes, what can you do that changes that but doesn't fundamentally alter the state of the game at this point. Right. Um, and I just, I don't know. I mean, it's almost like I kind of wish that they had stuck with the NBA without the three-point line and the ABA had it. And um, you had just a different, if you wanted to see a different kind of basketball, you could go see that somewhere else. Right. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. I, I, I get the impression, and this is only an impression, that the NBA is not too worried about it right now. That I think they're paying attention to it, but from some of the metrics and data points that are available to us, worldwide viewership grows every year. The TV contracts go every year, grow every year. The salaries are growing every year. There seems to be, even with tanking, uh, a little more parity on the horizon and opportunities out of the doldrums of not being a good franchise. Uh, I think of like the Clippers and how people expect the Knicks to pop back a little bit. Um, even the Bulls are h horrendous right now, but I think a lot of folks expect them to come back, especially if they were to get something like Anthony Davis. So 
I think there are so many other factors that go into interest in the NBA right now that this isn't as standout just yet. Uh, that I, I don't think they're terrified by it by any means. So I don't see anything drastic coming. But nonetheless, like the fact that the game has changed and the point of interest for a consumer has changed, I don't know what the NBA thinks of that. I, I really don't. I, I don't know what they think, if that's a good thing or bad thing, or if they care. Yeah, and I think that they would argue, and I've heard this argument, so... I'm pretty sure they do that that Harden is such a rare talent that there's not going to be another team that's running the same kind of boring basketball because they don't have a player that can do what he does. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's a really compelling argument and that if other teams want to do it, they're going to have to do it like the Bucks or the Nets or the Hawks are doing it where you like have to run offense and stuff. And it will be interesting to see because what we've also seen is that you know, NBA-based basketball is by far at its best in the playoffs. And so there's all kinds of talk already about limiting the regular season. And I think we're starting to see this year that people are paying a little less attention to the regular season. And I think our numbers will really spike come postseason time. Um, right. But I'm wondering, because we know that postseason basketball is totally different and that in that last, in the fourth quarter of an NBA game, it turns into like what, exceptional talents can get past the exceptional talents of the other team um that that's all that really matters in some way at the nba's level that if that were to deteriorate or if they had teams that weren't playing exciting basketball in the finals four or five years in a row i think that that's when they'd start to get worried but when it's happening in the regular season i don't think it matters much to them yeah yeah, it's amazing that the NBA can get away get away with not really caring about the regular season. <laughs> uh, it's an incredible feat that they play that many games, and it's just kind of like, yeah, we'll slog through this, and then people will really pay attention the last three, four weeks of the season, which is true. That's what happens. Well, you know, when you say that, uh, as we get to the end here, I have to bring up uh, our boy LeBron, who uh, is – just doing incredible things at the moment with the Lakers. <laughs> <laughs> Do share your weekly LeBron hate with me. I mean, you could write a book on the poor leadership tendencies of LeBron in his first year with the Lakers. It's yeah. just amazing. Um, yeah. Like, I've, I've grown to really respect the guy, but when he says what he says and then he goes out on the court and does what he does, I just... Like, dude, you can't do that anymore. You just can't do that. What Brad is referencing here, if you haven't seen, there are uh, a mounting amount of clips of LeBron playing defense. Better said, LeBron not playing defense. And being really mad about it. Yeah, and being really mad at his teammates for trying to play defense but not doing it well. And then yeah. he goes into the locker room, and he's like, we just don't have a playoff mentality. It's yeah. like, come on, dude. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe to kind of wrap up, I think it'll be – I think it'll be fascinating to watch and find out where this peak or plateau is and if it 
comes back down from where that plateau is initially established. I think that'll be fascinating. And I'm with you that that fact that a three-pointer is as valuable as a four-foot shot, that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and so how that continues to play out in the NBA and how that is, um, I guess, exploited going forward will be fascinating to watch because I think there – I have to think that there are more options than just the James Harden model and or the Warriors model. And like you said, there are other teams kind of exploring and imploring other options, but I I don't think we've exhausted the options for exploiting the fact that a five-footer is the same as a three uh, or a 25-footer. Like that, that'll be fun to watch for me personally. I don't know about you. Yeah, I'm intrigued as well because I think um... – you know, this analogy just came to me, but I kind of view it in the same way. Um, you know, the worst case scenario, I think the NBA could point to high school football, right? I don't know when the last time you went to a high school football game was. Um, but except at exceptional schools, they just run the ball like 90% of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be quite boring. And yet we have seen that high school football is still thriving as a sport regardless of a number of other hurdles in its way. Um, And that's because, A, there's always generational talents doing incredible things on the field. I know I've said generational talents about 100 times here. I'm going to stop saying that. but um, Full support. (laughs) uh, But there's that aspect of it, and there's enough differentiation. So I think the NBA will always have – the unicorn, so to speak. And so I think about, you know, there will be another Shaq at some point who mm-hmm. shows the benefit of having a low post game. Um, and in fact, I think you can see it right now. I think it's probably soon that you realize if you can put four scores around uh, a low post guy, that's really good. That's probably the next iteration of what we're looking at here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, saw an article this week talking about what it would look like if Anthony Davis and Zion Williamson wound up in Chicago together. Mm. Like that would be an anti-Warriors team on like (laughs) 50 levels. But you would look at them and say like, wow, there is a ton of potential to win games. Yeah. Uh, Even with the math of a four point shot or a four foot shot versus a 25 footer, you'd still would like, be like, no, there's a really good chance that Anthony Davis and Zion are going to win this game. So and I think there are other options out there, but this will still be fascinating to watch. What? Well, yeah. Tell me about what you're interested in this coming week. I saw today that Floyd Mayweather could fight a billion-dollar fight. Did you see this? No. I don't keep up with boxing until I was astounded by my own ignorance of who his opponent would be. But it's apparently this fighter that's world-renowned. At any rate, they're saying it would be possible for a billion-dollar fight. That there are already people putting up the money to make it possible. Interesting. And I, my brain exploded. I had no idea what to do with that That. The thought of two people punching each other, <laughs> garnering a billion dollars in a single night and something that could potentially end in 10 seconds. Uh, it, it just blew my mind that that 
that is even a headline. It may be sensational, but nonetheless, it was still a headline that had enough information behind it to warrant even a headline. So I don't know. I that the permeance and the salience of MMA is so sad and depressing to me. And so I guess I was bringing that into it as well. Just the fact that boxing and MMA are, are things that we value to the extent that it might lead to a billion dollar fight. I, it's, it's tough for me <laughs> to have anywhere to put that. Um, so I hope you have a, something happy to look forward to. Well, I will just share that I did see recently, so right around New Year's, he was paid, Mayweather was paid $9 million to fight this Japanese kickboxer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just amazing because he totally destroyed the guy, like mm-hmm. less than a round, and he knocked him out, left the guy in yeah. tears. Um, yeah. And the guy is so incredible as a boxer, but also incredible as uh, a business person, and yet mm-hmm. such a shit person. Man, what a... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Amen to that. Oh, my. Um. But I'll share that I'm thrilled because cycling classic season has started up again. So this past weekend we had, um, uh, oh gosh, Kerner Brussels Kerner uh, and Umla Pet Newsblatt. Uh, really exciting to see the Cowboy Classics. And then this coming week on Saturday is one of my favorite races of the year, which is Strada Bianca, which is raced on dirt roads in Italy. And it's just such an incredible race. Um, so... For those of you that uh, don't know my love of bike racing, I'm a huge fan, and this represents a really exciting time of year for that stuff. I knew you were going to bring it out. I thought about like throwing it to you for you to talk about cycling, but I knew you'd get there anyways. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk about cycling soon because uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but um, uh, the a bunch of police showed up at the world cross country skiing games. Have you seen this? No. Um, and they uncovered a bunch of blood doping stuff that was happening, uh, including walked in. There's this great video of them walking into this room with this like world-class uh, cross country skier while he's getting a blood transfusion. Like he's hooked <laughs> up and the look on his face is like, Oh man. Oh crap. <laughs> oh that's sad and hilarious at the same time but it's just amazing because it speaks to this all these steps have been done to prevent doping and yet they're not working you know none of this stuff showed up on any of the tests it all just showed up through tracing money and tracing doctors that they've been able to track this down which is just yeah what it says about doping is incredible yeah that is amazing I feel like I also saw a headline today. I feel like the guy that just looks at headlines, which is probably kind of true, actually, but that a woman's race had to be postponed because the leader of the women's race caught up with the men's race. Because apparently, like, the men's race started, like, an hour earlier, and she caught the pack in the men's race. And so they didn't know what to do because she was drafting off the peloton of the, of the men's race. I did not see that. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I made a point to go find out what the details are on that, but that sounds like a fun story. Oh, my. 
Sounds like perfect cycling in terms of not <laughs> well organized. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, well cool, man. I'm good right, there. Man. Good deal. Well, thanks, y'all, for listening. Please give us a rating and review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'll be back next week. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, man.